Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on getting to know God better. Welcome to the first installment of the series, Growing in Knowing Him and Growing in Knowing the Lord. How many people brought a Bible tonight? Ooh, wow. I don't even have to exhort you. Great. And if you didn't, I invite you to bring it next time. And maybe some of the passages that we look at, you might want to mark in your own Bibles, as I have in mine, because these are the kind of things it's nice to think about and chew on and go back over. As the pastor said, we're beginning the 40 days leading up to Easter, Resurrection Sunday. 40 days, that popular number in the Bible, 40 years in the wilderness, 40, Jesus' 40 days being tempted by Satan. Many, many instances of that use of 40 uh, is a time of learning, preparation, separation. And they kick it off with what's called Ash Wednesday. I don't know the whole history on this, but whenever they would go into a time of mourning in the Old Testament, it was usually in sackcloth and ashes. Ashes possibly just to remember that that's all we used to be and all we will be someday in one sense. And just to remember how temporary and short our lives are, as Isaiah said, all flesh is grass, and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. In the Episcopal Church where I was raised on Ash Wednesday, they, part of the service was everyone would come forward and they would take ashes and make the sign of the cross on your forehead in case you needed a visual aid. Some people are so distracted, you know, but if you can do something that's a little more visual like that, and then they go home and see it in the mirror. Say, oh, yeah, that's right. This is Ash Wednesday. And during these six weeks, we're going to cover topics like tonight. We're going to talk about our need. And then we're going to talk about his salvation, his resurrection, his lamb, his glory, and his grace. I want to share with you a quote from The Set of the Sail by A.W. Tozier. Now, this was written about 50 years ago. I'll let you be the judge to what degree it also somewhat characterizes the church today. He writes the following, what then is the trouble in the church today? Why the inertia, the sleepiness that lies over the church? The answer is that, is that we are too comfortable, too rich, too contented. We hold the faith of our fathers, but it does not hold us. We are suffering from judicial blindness visited upon us because of our sins. To us has been committed the most precious of all treasures, but we are not committed to it. God has set eternity in our hearts, and we have chosen time instead. He is trying to interest us in a glorious tomorrow, and we are settling for an inglorious today. We are bogged down in local interests and have lost sight of eternal purposes. We improvise and muddle along, hoping for heaven at last, but showing no eagerness to get there. Correct in doctrine, but weary with prayer and bored with God. I'm going to repeat that last part. Hoping for heaven at last, but showing no eagerness to get there. Correct in doctrine, but weary of prayer and bored with God. Now all of us have learned in our Westminster Confession, what is man's chief end? What is it? Very good. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
But I've often wondered, I've been meditating on this this past year, what does that mean and how do you do it? It reminds me of the student I was talking to 20-some years ago at USC. We'd gone out to share our faith, and so I was talking with this student, and, I, and uh, so he, I asked him, what is it that you think God wants of you? And he says, oh, to obey the Ten Commandments. I thought, well, good, very good. Well, what are they? I mean, I, I take it this is what you feel is the most important thing. This is what God Almighty wants of your life, the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? Well, there was this pause. And after he thought for a while, he says, well, one at least is to not smoke marijuana. <laughs> I think it was the living translation, but what does it take to glorify God. Do you have an answer for that? Could you, without really spending much effort at all, immediately rattle off ten ways that you glorify God? So before we think too lowly of that student, we have said man's chief end, in other words, my chief end, is to glorify God. And I feel very good that I can say that. I know the answer to the question. But if you ask just a little bit more, well, how do you do that? We begin to experience where some weakness is. How would you say you're doing tonight, this past week, this past month, in glorifying God? That's our chief end. How are we doing? And the other part, enjoy him forever. Are you even enjoying him now? How do you know that you're enjoying him? Are your times with him a thrill? Do you even have any time with him? That says something about how much you enjoy him because all the things that you enjoy, you plan on, you make time for, you look forward to, and once they're over, you reminisce on. How are your times with the Lord? Are you enjoying him? Now, I'm not saying any of this to make you feel bad, in case it does, because you may have all wonderful answers for this, and you should be up here talking, because I don't always know clearly how to glorify him, and I probably don't always enjoy him. But this is by way of introduction, as we think about what we're going to talk about in the next six weeks, because we would love to see some real progress in all of our lives. Now, perhaps part of the problem is that when we just state it so simply and succinctly, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, that maybe there's some truths and expressions in the Bible that we fail to go on to incorporate that would help us. When we think about a chief end, that's what you're chiefly seeking. But when we think about David, open in your Bibles to Psalm 27 give you a little exercise here. A Psalm of David, and we're going to look at verse 4. And we're going to see how David would answer the question, well, David, what, do you, what are you aiming at? What are you seeking? What are you looking for? Psalm 27, 4, David says, one thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. 
He didn't say to glorify God and enjoy him forever, although I think he, that would be included. I'm not saying one or the other. I'm just trying to expand where, what we're aiming at. And when David says, well, what am I aiming at? Since they hadn't written the Westminster Confession, he couldn't say the other thing. So he says, well, this is the one thing. He says, you know, there's the, the genie and the lamp and the three wishes. He says, I don't need three wishes. One will do. One thing I have asked from the Lord, and that I will seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. He wanted to get to know the Lord. How about Paul? Turn into the New Testament in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Very popular, well-known verses. And Paul says, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, would that glorify God? You better believe it would. To really know the Lord to know the power of his resurrection in your life, to walk with him through suffering, all of that would glorify God. Would that help you enjoy the Lord? Well, yes. You see, these things work together. But by beginning to focus on this issue of, well, what does it mean to know him, I think some new things maybe become clearer and will help us as we seek to grow in our faith and as we prepare our hearts for Easter this time that I may know him, that I may get to know him better. Now, Paul had been a Christian maybe for 20 years. And he is still running as hard as he can to get to know God. So our talk tonight is going to focus on what is our, what is our need. In John 17, 3, and after a few more flipping, we won't, we won't turn as much, so just a little bit here at the beginning. But, uh, but John 17, 3, as you recall, that's at the end of the Last Supper, and this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And at the beginning of it, in verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He doesn't define eternal life in minutes or days or years or time, but in terms of relationship. In other words, eternal life can begin right now to the degree we get to know him. He says this is what really is eternal life. It's knowing him. It's knowing him. So let's look in Acts 17. Acts chapter 17, at a passage that I found very instructive in this. Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens, in Greece, and he's, he's walked around and sort of gotten the lay of the land, seen what's, what it's like there in Athens and all the idol worship and all the Greek gods. And then in verse 22, it says, He stood in the midst of the Areopagus, which was a sort of a marketplace area, which they 
even today know right where it is. You can visit it today, I believe. And he said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. They probably felt pretty good about that. He didn't just say you're religious, and that was a very positive term for them. They had a God for everything, and they tried to be thorough. You're religious. Well, they thought, yep, we are. He says, you're very religious. Yep, that's us. You're very religious in many respects. Oh, yes, we are. He says, you're very religious in all respects. So he says, he's really got the crowd now. They're happy with that because they, they feel like he's complimenting them. And he says, for a while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription. So Paul has taken the time as a good missionary to walk around, see what they're doing, see the things that they've made. And he says, I've, I've, I didn't just walk in here and start talking. I, I looked around. I, I went around and saw all your different objects of worship. And I found this altar with an inscription to an unknown God. This was the one that because they were trying to be so thorough and make sure they didn't offend any God, uh, you never know, you might have left one out. They're invisible, you know. And so they had one altar that was to make up... Have you ever heard of All Saints Day? The calendar was also in, in, the, in the Catholic calendar. They had an All Saints Day, and I think that was also sort of a catch-all day in case we missed any saints. Well, that was, that, any other saints are on this day, on All Saints Day. Well, this was... This is all other gods' altar. Anybody we forgot. So no other god can say, hey, you haven't done anything for me. Oh, yes, we have. We just didn't know what was your name. Here is your altar, an altar to the unknown god. But Paul takes that and uses it as an opportunity to start with something that they know and say, well, I want to deepen your understanding of this god you're already worshiping. And so instead of going head to head and saying, you're wrong in everything, listen to me, he said, uh, maybe we can progress in an area that you, you don't know about. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, what is religion? Religion are activities that supposedly help us draw near to God. It's sort of spiritual, ritual activities praying, coming to church, eating over at the fellowship hall with a prayer beforehand. Yeah, when you come in here, you maybe let a few bad words fly in the week. You don't let them fly in here. You, you're respectful. The sense that God is here, although he's in every place. But the reverence you have in here, all of that is sort of uh, religion. And back in 1985, I wrote this in my journal about this text because I was thinking about this issue of knowing God. You are very religious in all respects. They had many objects of worship, and they were active in worship. But still God was unknown, worshipped, but in ignorance. And I find also uh, among the church, churches many times, you could almost say the same thing. We're very religious in all respects. We have many things that we're busy about doing in terms of worship. And yet, to, for many people, he is still an unknown God. And this God that we worship, we still worship in ignorance. And I wrote, to try so hard and fail so completely. 
Lives filled with religion, lives filled with religion, but empty of God. To know so much about religion and so little about him who is the object of religion. Isn't it interesting how the very thing intended to help bring us to God, religion, often can be a big barrier to us actually getting to him. Unconsciously, our religious activities might, can replace God as being the main goal. And if its demands, religion's demands are satisfied, so are we. You see, religious things, you can check them off. Did you go to church on Sunday? Did you go to Sunday school? Did you read your Bible today? Did you pray? And you have this checklist. Sometimes it gets kind of tiring because you've got other things you've got to do too. Your yard looks terrible and, and uh, you, know, you don't want visitors to come over to your house because it's sort of messy. At least ours is. This is confession time, you know. Uh, I need to sweep the garage. There are all these other things. But then you've got these long things also of, of, of religious things that are very good things. I'm not saying they're bad things. I'm just saying that sometimes... That ends up being the focus, and somehow we lost God in the midst of all of it. We either checked off all the boxes or didn't, and we're sort of feeling bad about that and hope nobody asks us. But religion can be something that might help us draw near to God, but it can sometimes also end up being a barrier, as it was for them, as it was in many times for the Jews, when God would say, I'm tired of your sacrifices. Yeah, but Lord, you're the one that asked us to give these sacrifices. I know it was a good idea originally, but y'all have turned it into an end in itself, and you just come in and sacrifice the lamb, and then you eat, and you never even talk to me. You don't, you know, when I've told you to do stuff, you won't do it. He says, just forget the sacrifices. I'd much rather you obey me, seek for me, and know me. It's scary because I want to get to know him, but failure, humanly speaking, is a very real possibility. But knowing him isn't mere gravy, a garnish, a simple non-essential. Knowing him is so necessary to the life God intends for me to lead. It's the heart of what he wants me to be. My goal is not religion or pious activities. My goal has to be God himself. To draw near to him, to get to know him. So as we think about our topic tonight, our need, what do you need? If we were to pass out a piece of paper and a pen to everybody and just say, go ahead, just write down a list of everything you need. Write down what you need emotionally, Write down what you need relationally. I'd really like to get along better with my sister, my mother, my neighbor, whatever. Materially, well, yes, I'm a little bit in debt. I could use this, and the car would need this, and the children would need that. Spiritually, well, yes, and you could think of a number of things there. Politically, you might have some needs or things that you would like to see happen. What is your need. The Bible says that our true need, our deepest need, and what we really have always been seeking without realizing it, is God himself. All of these other things are sort of symptoms. Now you've had clues to that because there have been things in the past that you thought, I really need this. You know, if you were 22, you're thinking, I really need to be married. If you're 30 and out of a job, I really need a job. And, th and that's true to a certain extent. But there have been moments when you had this thought, this is what I need, and then you get it, right? So you're, you're there to that, 
uh, blissful state of having attained that desire and that need, and then it's not quite as great as you were thinking it would be. Oh, it's okay. It's like the gum, and you pop it in your mouth, and the first minute, it's great. But then it just sort of drops off, you know, and the pleasure and enjoyment, and finally, it's just a kind of a, a wad in your mouth, and you can keep chewing it if you want, but it's not nearly as interesting as it used to be. And we have gone through that so many times of where we'll have the desire and think, this is what I need, and then we'll get it, and there's a moment of euphoria, and then there's sort of a letdown. Why? Because that was not really, truly our deepest need. You've probably heard the quote by the French physicist Pascal, but he said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that only God can fill. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that only God can fill. Jeremiah 2.13, God talks about a problem that often his people get into. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. And Jeremiah was written right at the very end of the history of the southern kingdom of Judah. During his lifetime, all the judgments that had been being predicted for 200 years finally fell and Jerusalem was besieged and taken and destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The people were deported. But in Jeremiah 2.13, he says, My people have committed two evils. Now let's look at what these are. Would it, would it be bankruptcy? Maybe, maybe we should just guess. Don't even look yet. They have committed two evils. They don't go to the temple anymore. They are offering pigs instead of lambs. They are letting people offer sacrifices that aren't priests. What could these two evils be? Well, let's look at them. The two evils are, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. This is not sisters. It's cisterns with an N. Uh, we don't need cisterns because we have running water. But in a country where you don't have running water, you count on rain, and you try to make something to hold it so that when it comes down, it stays there, and you can go get some when you want some, particularly if you live up in the hill country of Judah, where it's kind of a long way down to the Jordan. And so they would make these cisterns, which was a kind of a big, open water receptacle. And he's using this as a figure now. And God says, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Now, they were still going to the temple, you think, well, but we're still coming to the temple. We're doing the sacrifices, and we could also say, well, Henry, we're the guys here in church, you know, you're preaching to the choir. But the fact is, we can come and still go for many years not really getting to know him. Not because we thought, oh, I'm, I'm just not going to get to know him. Who wants to know him? I just want to be religious. I mean, nobody says that. Nobody thinks that. Nobody means that. But sometimes these things can happen. And fortunately, the Lord gives us ideas about how we can break out of that and into the thrill of the depth of a new relationship with Him. He says they've committed two evils. They have forsaken me. They've turned their back on me, the person of God, who He is. They've turned away from me and they've turned to something else as a substitute for me. They've made these cisterns, and he says they're not even very good cisterns. They're cracked, and they can't hold any water. 
God is pictured as the, as the fountain of life, the fountain of living water, where there's a constant supply, and the picture is satisfaction and joy and enjoyment. And he says, you have forsaken me, and you've gone chasing after other things, thinking that it's a better deal. Well, I know all this stuff about God. That's fine. That's, that's for you religious guys or you guys that do this for a living. But I really like these other things. Now, it's okay to like all kind of things. But when you put other things in God's place, that's where the problem is. As we remember from Acts 17, he says, I've been going around and I've been examining your objects of worship. Have you ever taken a moment to meditate on what are your objects of worship? What are your objects of worship? Well, you say, Henry, I, I would, we can have an up-to-date idol, like a TV or a computer or, or a show. Or At one point, I could tell, I hate to admit this, but I could tell Zorro was coming on every day there in Argentina. These, the old ones, you know, with the good, great Don Diego, you know. And I could just tell that at some point it had crossed over the line and the show was just meaning more to me than it needed to. I mean, everything had to clear the way for Don Diego and Zorro. You know, the kids cannot bother me. And I could tell this has just gone a little bit too far. Now, maybe you think I'm being extreme, but each, each one has to let the Holy Spirit in your heart be your God. It's not that anybody else, anyone else can come in and tell you when it's crossed over the line. You know, when we have an object of worship, when we make an idol, we never do it out of junk. That's why the idols in the Old Testament were always carefully carved. They were gold. They were made of the finest materials. Have you seen, read, they want to sell candies and stuff, and they say, made of the finest ingredients. Nuts imported from Brazil, chocolate from Switzerland. Well, that's how we make idols, too, only of the best things, good things that we really like and enjoy, and that it's fine to enjoy. But when those things move over, because we, put, we move them over, and they replace God in our lives, and we are looking to those things for our satisfaction, our enjoyment, our fulfillment, he says, you've committed two great evils. You've turned away from me, and you have made a receptacle where you're trying to catch other kinds of pleasure and put them in place of me. And put them in place of me. So as we think, well, Lord, great. I, I guess this could at any point in my life have something to do with me. So, I'm, you know, you, you want to steer away from being an absolutist. Well, I'm, I'm totally guilty. Or I'm totally innocent, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a progression as the Lord instructs us and teaches us and leads us. But if we take all of this and say, well, Lord, great, help me, help me to do better. Show me a new way. How can I get to know you? If I want to turn back to the fountain of living water. I want to turn back to God. Now, I, I'm already being religious. That's great. No problem there. That's not the problem. The problem is what's going on in my heart. And the fact is, many times, I have not been actually seeking God himself. I've just kind of gotten my rituals down, and so it's Sunday morning, and I'm going to church. I'm not thinking, oh, it's time to worship the Lord. Isn't he wonderful? No, I'm thinking it's just time to go to church, and I hope we don't have to yell at the kids this morning to get there. Let's try and keep the peace, and we just do it all, you know, and kind of get tired in the process. But we kind of race in, race out, and maybe God was sort of looking at us and 
you know, trying to get, get our attention, but we're too busy serving him. Zoom, zoom by, zoom back out, you know, serving the Lord or whoever it was. But we haven't taken the time to say, but Lord, who are you? Who are you? And there's been relatively little instruction on, well, how do you get to know a God who's invisible? It's basically silent. I mean, he, he, there's the scripture and he illuminates the scripture. Even people that feel like, well, God spoke to me. And in cases where, you know, they're really convinced, it's not as though it's every five minutes. It's, you know, not that often. So how do you get to know a God that's like that? He's everywhere and seemingly nowhere. There are times when you've sort of had a religious warm feeling, you know, in the Easter cantata or something, and there are other times you've just been dry as a desert, and you think, is this me or is this God? Or I don't know. And you've just kind of lived through that frustration, and maybe it got better. But how can you actually progress in getting to know this God? Because really, that's what it boils down to. That's what David said. That's if I have only one request, this is what I'm going to request. That I may dwell all the days of my life in the house of the Lord. Paul says, I'm, I'm aiming toward one thing. That I may know him. And get to know him better. Do you know him? Would you like to get to know him better? That's my invitation to you in these next six weeks. That just that we would ask the Lord, help us get to know you. So... I'd like you to open up to Exodus 33 because in Exodus 33 I think there's something that may be a help to us. It certainly helped me and given me sort of a clue on something that will help us get to know God better. Now in Exodus 32 there was the terrible incident of the golden calf it was sort of the, the ecstasy and the agony. The ecstasy, Moses up on the mountain, the Ten Commandments, written with the finger of God, the thunder, the lightning. It was just tremendous. Uh, never before in the history of the universe had something like this happened. It was so wonderful. And at the same time, so awful back down at the base of the mountain, them already falling into idol idolatry and immorality. So take into account that verse, chapter 33 is right after this bad situation. And it tells us how Moses would seek the Lord. In verse 7 it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Now this was not the tabernacle. Where would they put the tabernacle? In the middle of the whole camp, and they would all camp around it. This was before they'd even taken up the offering in order to, the building project, to build the tabernacle. So this was just a tent that Moses had where he would go and meet with the Lord. And he pitched it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, just to get away and be with God. And isn't it interesting what he called this tent? I don't know that people normally name tents. In Argentina, people like to name their houses, particularly if they had a house down at the beach or something like that. They would call it the refuge or peace in the middle of the storm or something. Uh, they're a little more flowery than we are. We just think it's the house, you know, down at the beach. But uh, Moses had this tent, and he called it the tent of meeting, not the tent of eating, not the tent of sleeping, but the tent of meeting, the idea 
as I'm going to meet with God Almighty. And everyone who sought the Lord would also go out to that tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And then we, we can go into his time with the Lord in the last half of the chapter. It relates to us, there was just a little microphone put in there in the tent, and we've captured a little sound bite of Moses' conversation with God. Not really, I suppose he wrote it down, but it's sort of like that. Kind of fascinating. I mean, I'm sure there's some conversations you would love to have listened in on, and particularly with, with uh, people that you've always heard about, great missionaries or different people, you would just love to be a fly on the wall, and either when they share their faith or talk to God or things like that. So we have this tremendous privilege of listening in on Moses' conversation with God, and we want to zero in on verses 13 and 14 because he uh, makes a request. So verse 13. Verse 13, he says, Now therefore I pray you, talking to God, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. What an interesting thing for Moses to ask for. Let me know your ways. I uh, looked that up in the original, and it is in plural, and it is the same word for, like, road or way or path. And you think, well, now God is everywhere. And being everywhere, he never has to travel anywhere because he's already there. And so how can you have a way or a path if you don't move? What would that mean, his ways, if God never moves? Well, the other meaning of that word is your manner, your way. I like to think of it as that he's asking God to tell him his MO, his modus operandi. He says, tell me more what you're like, how you are. Now, you have already done this with several people in your lives. You've had several friends. You've had parents. Many of you are married. Many of you have had kids. And with all of those intimate relationships, particularly if you're a mom, you study them. You can almost predict what they're going to do, what they're going to say. Why? Because you've learned their M.O., you know how they operate. You know how they think. Now, maybe guys don't uh, make as many detailed observations, and, but we also sort of size up a person and have an idea over a period of time whether that person's trustworthy and in a given situation what kind of things they'll do. And so Moses is saying, Lord, don't just tell me things you've done. I want to know what kind of a God are you? What sort of a person are you? Why would he want to know that? Well, one reason, as anybody that you love, you're sort of fascinated with. And all of you probably have had some, at least some romantic moment. Maybe it was uh, love unrequited. But during that period of time, you had a special fascination. You wanted to know what kind of dessert they liked. You wanted to know where they would like to go for a vacation. And all these different questions that you could come up with, and you would sit, sit there wondering, well, I wonder what they're doing now, what they're saying now. You were fascinated in getting to know what kind of a person is this. And to the degree you liked what you found, you were even more fascinated until they dumped you or something like that. But 
Maybe you had a happy ending too. Maybe you're sitting next to the person. But you know that person's MO. You know what sort of a person they are. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Now maybe they don't have any bad or ugly, but all have sinned, right? But Moses is saying, God, you're a person, and you also have ways. Would you show them to me? Would you reveal them to me? Why, Moses, do you want to know that? He says, I want to know you. I want to know you. Now, Jesus says, that's it. That sums up all of eternal life. Now, for us, maybe we read it and we say, well, I didn't think it was that big of a thing, but it must be. Sometimes you, you start off with something really, really little, and you think, well, I, yeah, that's, that's there and that's important. But as you, as you go further and further, it ends up getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's how this topic of getting to know God really is. Why? Because he's so big. I was thinking one time, I shared this in the prayer class, but what's it like getting to know God? And I picture it like a little child sitting on the sand by the Atlantic Ocean with a bucket and a shovel. And they're going to fill up their bucket with the ocean. So they fill up one bucket full and they have another place to dump it. And they know another bucket and they dump it. What are you doing? I'm emptying out the ocean. Great. The child's been there for 4,000 years. He says, little child, how much you got to go of that ocean? He looks out and it looks the same size that it did 4,000 years ago and who knows how many buckets. And that's what it's like getting to know God. There is so much more. That's why Paul says, I haven't been at this 20 years, and I give it all the attention I can. I want to know who he is. Learn to be fascinated and distracted with who God is. Now, when we think of about knowing his ways, you've seen these uh, hedge bushes, and you could just look at one bush, right? and it's about this big and trimmed off on the top. Or you could look at several bushes lined up and say, oh, that's a hedge. I can kind of see the line that they go in. Or you can fly over this garden and you realize, hey, that's a maze because this hedge goes down here, turns here, and the way you get in and out of that is through this path. Now, the single bush is an action of God, something that he's done. Several bushes are several things that he's done. But when you see it from the air, you realize, hey, there's a pattern here. This is the way God seems to operate. I think I'm, I think I'm picking up on something. An overall way that God is. And these are the kind of things that as you get to know these different ways, and that's kind of what we're going to look at these six weeks, lights begin to go on in terms of things that have already happened in your life and, and, and it teaches you, it, it helps you to know how to pray for, in situations because you're beginning to get to know what sort of a God he is, what kind of things please him, what kind of things grieve him. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Well, the way you learn that is you learn his ways. What sort of a God is he? So we want to look at a particular passage now in uh, Habakkuk 3, we were building up to this. We'll see how far we get. We'll introduce it tonight and maybe develop it next time. 
But I was doing a study in Habakkuk, finally made it there after 30 years of Bible study, a little slow. But uh, let's start in Habakkuk chapter 1, just to give you a little background. Habakkuk 1 verse 2, the pages are still rustling. It is in the Old Testament. It's uh, after Hosea and all that stuff, and it's before Malachi and several books. Keep wrestling, keep going, you'll find it. And uh, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? He says, I've been praying about this national situation. We are in a, we're in a heap of trouble. We've disobeyed you. You said you're going to judge us. If we didn't repent, we're not repenting. And I keep praying, Lord, bring revival, bring repentance. And in verse 5 and 6, God says, uh, I haven't been doing nothing. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days. You would not believe it if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the people in Iraq, the Chaldeans. They lived in Iraq. Funny thing, huh? That fierce and impetuous people who marched throughout the earth. And they are going to discipline you. And in verse Starting in verse 12, the prophet answers, and he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, our Lord, have appointed them to judge. And he goes on, verse 13, Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? They're even worse than we are. How are you going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to discipline us. This is a terrible idea, God. I was looking for revival and something positive, and you're sending this big negative thing. Well, God had already tried smaller sticks, and so now the sticks were getting bigger because they had not responded to God's word. And so in chapter 2, verse 2, then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. He's, he's predicting the fall of Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians. Now, this time, the Babylonians weren't a big deal yet. It's like, who? If somebody had asked you 14 years ago, you think we'll ever go to war with um, Iraq? What would you have said? Are you kidding? Some of us were saying that a year ago. And God says, I'm planning something to get your attention and to turn you back to God and to deliver you from idolatry. And the lesser things didn't work, so we're going to try something bigger. And there may be some parallels to our present day. We don't know. God maybe will tell us sometime. But when we get to chapter 3, which is where we're, we've been going with this, In chapter 3, verse 2, Habakkuk says, O Lord, well, he says, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. He says, I'm afraid. This, is, this sounds even worse than I was thinking. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Somehow God used this for our good and to revive your people. And that's really our prayer, that whatever happens with the current situation in the world today, that God would have mercy. In his wrath, he would remember mercy. All have sinned. There's no 100% righteous person on the face of the earth. And the Lord would use 
and does use any events in many ways to affect all lives for his, for his purposes. But where we want to go is now the, this passage, verse 3 through verse 15, is a very strange passage, but it relates to what we're talking about, about learning about the ways of God. We're going to get into that next week. I invite you to read it this week. To look over Habakkuk chapter 3, and, uh, and then we're going to talk about that and see what do we draw out of this, because you're going to read it and you're going to say, huh? So just come back by faith, uh, because we're going to, there are two ways of God that are very beautifully expressed here, although in poetic form, so it's not quite as clear. But I want to close tonight in this topic of our need to know him with a reflection that I wrote down uh, many years ago when my oldest son, Walt, was right about a year and a half old. Because I was thinking about this, uh, I was right in the midst of my time, a special time of about a year and a half of focusing just on knowing him, uh, the Lord. (laughs) And, um, And so the thought came to me, well, I'm Walt's father. Does he know me? Does my son know me? He hasn't read any books about me. He can't draw me. He doesn't have a notebook full of information about me. The only things he can quote me on are common words that almost anyone uses every day, like more or please or no. We haven't been acquainted all that long, only a little more than a year and a half. He doesn't always try to please me. Maybe he doesn't know me. But when I go to pick him up at the kindergarten and make my loud clip-clop noise to let him know I'm coming, he starts pointing and saying daddy and chuckling and getting all excited. He's content and happy with me near when others won't do. He knows which tone of voice I use that means no fooling around. A few nights ago, he was sick and threw up four times. Wendy was holding him in the rocking chair fast asleep. But at one point, he moved around a little, and out of a distant dream, he said, Daddy, and kept on sleeping. I hope Daddy was there in his dream when he needed him. Maybe he does know me after all. Sure, he will get to know me better through the years, but right now he knows my voice, seeks my face, loves my presence, and accepts my reproof. Will I love him any more when he knows me better or can carry more responsibilities? No, he's my son, and I love him. How wonderful to think of our relationship with our Heavenly Father in these terms. How he loves for us to seek him, however weak we may be. We're his children through faith in Christ. And his love for us does not grow or diminish with the years or the victories or the defeats. I'll read that again. His love for us does not grow or diminish with the years or the victories or the defeats. The Lord's not here tonight primarily to fuss at you or make you feel bad, but rather to invite you. My child, this can be a whole lot better. Won't you come? Let's pray. You are the Lord of heaven and earth, but you stoop to take us by the hand, and you long to reveal yourself more fully to us. Lord, we turn away from the broken cisterns that can hold no water, and we turn back to you, and we call out to you the same prayer that Moses prayed. 
Lord, show me your ways that I may know you and that I may find favor in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast.